since I started doing podcasting, like I, or when I started it, I can hear now these moments as the person who's like doing the interview where you're like, shit, that person needs to clear their throat. Yeah. You know, or yeah, they're like, they blah, blah, blah. Just, blah. Yeah. <laughs> and then at some point they're like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no, but that doesn't help actually when you, you're trying to clear your throat. It doesn't yeah. help because it's just like kind of you're a bit like nervous, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I definitely do need, but I will be one of the struggling persons. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, dear friends, and welcome to our podcast dedicated to sight reading through the lens of the historically informed performance practice. And today I have another special guest. (laughs) And actually, you're returning the visit. Could you tell about yourself a little bit more? Hello, Darina. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm Andrew Byrne. I'm a historical bassoonist and uh, all around sort of, uh, I did do podcasting. I do still do podcasting, but I, we first had you on our show, Surviving Classical Music. Uh, Grace Newcomb and I had you on. I think it's still available in video format. Yeah, you and so. Seb yeah. are in that episode. And that is, that was what, a year ago or more? I think more. Could it even be two years ago? Yeah. Wow. Something like that. Wow. So, yeah, a lot of time has passed. <laughs> yeah. that, that show's over time now. Flies. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, great to be here, and I'm uh, happy to be part of this award-winning Thanks show. for joining. So, um, yeah, could you tell about your channel, your podcast, and about your activity? So just a little bit more that people understand. I guess you could say I have three tracks in my career, and uh, one is centered around, of course, playing historical bassoons. And, uh, I mean, you can imagine what that sort of life is like if you're listening. Um, the second track is I own and operate a bassoon reed-making business, which is um, very time-consuming. Um, I sell to a lot of stores. I sell modern bassoon reeds to a lot of stores across the globe. <laughs> but you also have a channel, a YouTube channel about reed-making. That's right, yeah. So uh, about anything to do with the bassoon, really. Um, I, I find it... I think we all have this element when we start doing our own media production, we all have this sort of imposter syndrome. And I find it very easy to to do read-making tutorials since that's, that's work that I do every day. That's really something that no one could argue that I'm not a professional read-maker or bassoonist. Um, but sometimes, especially in the bassoon world, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm very niche in terms of what a professional bassoonist does. You know, I really only play on historical bassoonists, bassoons, excuse me, but I, I am coming, I, I come from a modern bassoon background, but I, I don't feel like necessarily like when I have advice to give that it's advice which will A, help a modern bassoonist play what's expected of, of them, and B, whether that, that advice, even though I may believe it's right, it might be contrary to what would get someone a job, I but guess you could say. That's not a bad thing when you're taking this niche and you exist there. Yep. Actually, that's a great thing for yeah. all of us. Yeah. yeah. So I don't, I, I would just say that I, I do the remaking thing f- first because I know no one could argue with, like, that all of that advice is useful to anyone and will help them be a better player or remaker or whatever. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I, I have, I only do remaking media, you know. Um, and the third thing, just to finish, to round out that first question, is that I, I now do a lot of podcasting or videography and 
anything related to social media. Um, I've been involved in that now starting four years, almost four years ago. Surviving Classical Music started in September 2019, and it was supposed to be sort of a joke, me and Grace having a good time, and then things got really real <laughs> for quite some time. And that became more about, like, living as a freelancer and the problems associated with, like, the workplace um, rather than about music, necessarily. And even about activism, like musical activism in a way, because yeah. I was kind of going through your episodes this morning and I noticed that there is a lot of really sensitive subjects that you were talking mm. about. So how did you experience that as a, maybe as an activism or maybe not? Um, did you feel about that in this regard? And uh, what is your impression after you, like you became successful and how did it change you? I think Well, I, I, the one thing I would say on that question is just it's hard to define what success is. And I think you, you never have an objective view of what you're doing until you stop, actually. And I was never really sure when we were doing it that we were making any difference at all. Partly because when you make a podcast, you publish it, and then it's just out there, and you often get no feedback at all. And that, that I think, was hard because we tackled... Not every week, for sure, but probably once every month or maybe once every two months, we tackled something that I felt was worth putting on the air, you know, and in those episodes, we just got no feedback. And I, the, the difficulty and one of the reasons why the show sort of wound down in the first place is because we are all working musicians invested. We are relatively young in our career, early in our careers. We want to keep playing and there's a lot of bad things that were happening and to call that out could necessarily mean that someone might not get called for a gig and I think there was always that line where no one was really willing to say explicitly like I know that this thing is going wrong right now and and so often the more interesting discussions would happen when we were like okay that's a wrap and then we would talk for like one two three more hours like at the at the cafe next next door to the studio um, about something which really should go on the air but never did because it was too close to us. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's what um, I get an impression about when I think of our field, also classical music. It's really a sensitive topic. Uh, have you seen this um, new movie with Kate Blanchett, Tar? Tar, yeah, I just what watched it. What do you it. think about it? I think that's a great example... I mean, obviously it's a fake, it's not a true story, you know, like it's entirely made up, but it is so, I mean, I don't engage, I've never interacted with someone at that strata of classical music, somebody who has their own foundation, who conducts, conducts some famous group, you know, I don't know those people, those people are in a totally different area of music, we would never show up at the same festivals, you know, like I'm just not in that level, but I can totally see how... You know, there, there's a great example in that movie, and I hate to give a spoiler, but it, it's it's exactly the line which I'm talking about is that moment where she's going to audition the cello position in the Berlin Phil, and the she sees the the boots in the bathroom of this woman who's obviously we find out later is going to audition and she checks her out as the woman walks out of the bathroom and and you can tell she's like oh i wonder who that is but she doesn't say that out loud and then 
what happens is that in the blind audition, we see those same boots climbing up the stairs and about to play, and she and that's the person who wins the job. And it's completely subtle. There's explicitly you could never say that that is wrong. You know that there, that there's a very obvious line there which is being crossed because who knows. Um, but in the end, she ends, and then la- later it sort of spins out that that's sort of like her her. I hate to use the word boy toy because that's totally wrong, but you know what I mean? Like that, that ends up like the next person that she's sexually interested in. And there's this other story element to it where, where she's accused and the accusations go on and on, but we don't see that on screen. So we can't really know, but that, that moment, like objectively you could never know that, that she's preferring this person because she's sexually interested in them. Um, but it, it's so easy as a class, as someone in the industry to go like, Oh yeah, that, that, I totally believe that exactly how they're presenting it is is what's happening and not that they're tricking the audience into thinking it's about sex but it's really not you know um the way that they state it in the in the in the movie and how it winds out it while it's happening as a musician I'm going yep that's that's really happening. Yeah. Know? Yeah, that's so cool that you pointed out this scene. Yeah. That's I almost forgot about it, but yeah, that's yeah. actually an important turn kind of uh, yeah. of the story. Yeah. Um so I was wondering, you said that all these really sensitive subjects uh, on your show, they were not receiving the feedback or any kind of response. And which subjects were really um triggering those feedback in a way? Mm, I think, to be honest, the most feedback I got on a single episode was when I said, we're stopping the show. And mainly because, and I, I, anybody who's listening here has probably heard the last episode of Surviving Classical Music. It's off the air now, so you can't, you can't find it. But basically, I, you know, it was in November, just, just this past November. And basically, and, you know, like the scene, things were sort of going, I hesitate to use the term going back to normal, but, you know, people were having a, concert schedule in in around November or Christmas time and someone had said to me um I'm worried about the future for my students and I wanted and we got in depth about a particular situation where um I think the orchestra had her orchestra had less rehearsal time than normal and then the whole orchestra was told in that moment in the last in like the one rehearsal tomorrow's concert is is so important that you don't screw it up and they they said i i i don't want i don't want my students to go through that and i said yeah it's kind of it's bad organizing if the if the administrator puts all the pressure on the first concert when there are multiple concerts why not send why not invite the sponsors to the second or third or fourth concert given that situation and they said to me no 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 i'm not talking about me i can do anything i can do i'm i'm like a machine i can play under any situation and i felt in that moment first of all they were being disingenuous they were saying that something is bad but that they could do anything and if they can do anything then it doesn't matter that the situation gets worse than just sight read your 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 violin concerto or whatever for the first time in front of everyone in the Berlin Philharmonie. If you can do anything, then it doesn't matter. Um, so that's a, that's sort of like coming from a place of dishonesty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, at that moment, I realized ah, so we could really only be honest during the pandemic when we all, none of us had work. But now the work comes back, and then the rat race starts again. We all have to be the best of the bet. We all have to pretend mm-hmm. like we're. Mm-hmm. We're on un, um, undefeatable 
Um, yeah. So for you, it felt a bit artificial to go on with the show after yeah. the pandemic officially. Yeah. I think stopped. it was also harder to, because I think one of the difficulties on, on that, the, one of the downsides of running a show like that, where you're talking about often, where you're often talking about things, which are a bit hard, you know, the hard, the hard side, the darker side of working in music as a freelancer. Um, one of the harder sides is that of running that show is that people sometimes just complain to you. Like, can you believe what happened to me this week? And you're like, that's not really worth my time. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you're just want, you just want to vent. And, yeah. and if, and I'm not going to put you on the show, you know, basically. And, and that was one of the, one of the difficulties for me. Like, I think we did a show in the summer and we, with Johanna and then we did that one in November and, and in between there, there was just complaining, but not, So anything that was worth putting up and also the the scene every week like every month the scene was changing for mm -hmm. for two years mm -hmm. it was like uh no one can sing we can have only five people play or no audience but we can play or only 80 people in the audience you know like it was just the the, the rules were changing mm -hmm. every so often and so there was always there was always a way to spin something there was always an issue to talk about oh what happens if this happens and whatever then we got to a point where things really opened up and the i was hoping well if there is a real problem that could be fixed why don't we present a solution and i felt that with the the episode we did in the summer it was about you know basically all of these concerts happened this summer like so much music was being presented around europe and also at the same time everybody was getting sick Mm -hmm. And so there were these, mo like, there was, everyone was getting phone calls that I know was like, can you come to Finland now, you know? <laughs> yes, or, yes, oh my or, God, this great time, yeah. yeah. And I, I had 15, I had 15 calls for one weekend, right? And it was one particular weekend, it was really, I don't know why, but all the bassoonists in Europe were sick, and, and I was being asked to call, be, to play everywhere, literally everywhere. Name that city I was, I was asked to go. And... But in probably 10 of those 15 calls, they never said how much they were offering. And it was just like, we need someone now. Do you accept? And I felt, I mean, I was already booked, but I felt that it would be really shitty of me, pardon the, the swearing, to say, how much are you offering? Why? Why did you feel this pressure? Because I think it's on them. Because if I, because they're basically, some cases, like, I, a very well-known conductor wrote me, wrote a very long personal email without any relevant information asking me to come. And if I turned around and said to them, like, first of all, you never, you don't even know who I am, but thank you, it's very kind that you give me this attention. How much are you offering? And it turned out he wasn't offering very much. And if I said no, I know he would never contact me again. I mean, he still hasn't contacted me since, but... I've, I had this feeling like you are putting the onus on me to say, to, to, to just simply agree because your project is just more important than anyone else's. But do you else's. think it's just a sort of a ma manipulation that is going on here and there, like basically all the time and just the pandemic situation kind of brought all these cases on the surface, but I think it's still like all these difficult questions about transparency and stuff, um, they are very much present and they were present before mm -hmm. yeah i agree yeah. yeah yeah so it's kind of yeah the problem i mean it's good that we're talking about yeah that maybe people can reflect on yeah. this and maybe also protect themselves like musicians yeah 
But I think our scene is particularly difficult in that area <laughs> and answering those questions because exactly we get this, as my therapist says, <laughs> like... <laughs> Uh, we get this glamorous image of music yeah. and everybody should be dedicated yes, uh, yeah. dedicated to music and dedicating their lives to music. And of course, we're not talking about money because it's not cool. And, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, do, I just don't think many people realize that even at the high level freelancing scene, that for the people who are in it the longest, that those people are are actually doing those concerts as a hobby. That that most people who are on the freelance scene who are in their f late 40s, they're actually making most of their income teaching or in a music-related function, position, but the performing doesn't... It's like a bonus to their income. It's not 100% of their income. There are obviously exceptions. I mean, obviously in France, it's a totally different system. It's different... Um, but no one can live for 20 years or 30 years on 150 euros a day. It's just not possible. And especially now when we've just seen, like Germany has 16% food inflation. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, It's not incredible. possible to live on the fees that are being offered. But the, peop but the scene survives. And it survives also because a lot of those people aren't, like they're not feeding their families off of those fees. They have... They're teaching one or two days a week or or something else. Working somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and so I, I think that's the the part that people don't realize how unsustainable it has become over time. That I think probably 20, 30 years ago, you know, it was you didn't even have to teach. You know, like you didn't have to have anything else because but the fees have been frozen for so long. And when I say frozen, I mean literally like people go on strike because they don't get a pay rise because they've they've had a 0% increase and we've had a basically a 0% increase for 15 to 20 years and now this year we're all like oh shit because suddenly you know the last 10 years basically there was no inflation there was almost nothing it was 1 1% or something and now there's suddenly 10 or 15 mm -hmm. or uh, Switzerland yeah. not so bad but still you know yeah yeah. So, sorry, we're turning this into my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's these are important questions. Um, yeah. Ah, <laughs> <Depression>. <laughs> No. Yeah. So, Hendrian, what did motivate you to do this podcast? Actually, what was your true inner motivation? I think Grace and I have like we have a really great time off the air. <laughs> But, cool. but on the air, everything turns into into something like, I think I have a complex of if I'm going to put something out there, I want it to have, I want it to be substantial and meaningful to someone, whether that's a read making tutorial or me talking about a historical bassoon subject, or it's talking about work. And it began, if you listen to the, like the very earliest episodes, which I, I guess you can't now, um, it's really Grace and I making jokes and like talking about how, you know, we will go on a Saturday at like 5.30 to the grocery store and pick up whatever's 50% off, you know, stuff like yeah. that. And uh, what we what deals can we get this weekend? You know, that, that was the sort of humor that yeah. we brought into it. And it just stopped being funny in April 2020, you know. And that, that was hard, I think, for both of us. 
but it gave us it gave certainly me energy and a, and a focus in a way um but yeah i think we both wanted to do something which meant that we were putting things out there on a weekly basis that was really it because you know i think we all we all see we all have this problem with social media this was our first topic our real problem topic and still is for all of us where you scroll and you're like wow i've got this one gig this month or one next month and yet all i see are other people playing concerts but if you meet them one-on-one most people have the same situation that you're in yeah they're like yeah things are not going well for me and you but you look on social media and you're like that's just very misleading yeah, yeah this isn't true but no it's just everyone you know is having the one gig for them at that moment that you're looking yeah and um yeah that that is the the hard thing so i think that was the the original serious topic for us was to say you know let's all get together and agree uh life isn't like we see it to be on social media and that's still absolutely relevant today as it was then and i i think one of the things that I've, I've, I'm doing more now is I'm, I'm just doing a lot more stuff which goes on social media, but I don't think people realize actually how many hours go into whatever it is I upload. Obviously not photos, don't, they don't really matter. But a lot of things you realize are staged. Yeah, of course. That's an important aspect yeah. of yeah, today's social media behavior, let's exactly. Sorry for changing so abruptly. Today we are sight reading um, Sonata. 
um, methodische sonata uh, written by Telemann and it's just the first movement of a G minor sonata and you told me that you made your own version of that music especially specifically for bassoon and could you tell a bit more about this work that you have done yeah so this is a this is a practice project i guess for uh, i have some people who i have this sort of online studio that people sort of pay a little bit to be part of and you know i might upload a fingering chart or something up there all sorts of things appear there which don't necessarily they're not part of some greater plan lesson plan or something like that And um, the, the sort of the assignments that I'm doing right now are related to this collection, in fact, where I have done, I've only published two of them so far, but I'm making a transcription for bassoon for all, uh, for one movement from each of these six sonatas. And each of those movements are a slower movement, which Telemann has not only written like the, what I would call the composed line and the bass, but also the ornamented line. And the ornamented line will... The, the very interesting thing about this collection, the big takeaway for me, is that most of these movements, actually, no, all of them in this collection, do not have repeats and end in a way which means that you can't repeat them. You cannot repeat them. And yet, the ornamented line is so fundamentally breaking of the i mean it's it's not breaking you see the mel the melody sort of the mel the structure of the melody is still there but there's just so much so many notes added and and he changes things he changes the rhythm and he's doing this because he's giving this to an amateur player and he's he's in he says this in the introduction he's giving it to them as a gift and you realize wow there there's way more freedom out there, but we often only limit ourselves to doing ornaments in the repeated section of a movement uh, where, of course, there are repeats. But when there are none, we generally tend to let the, com the composed line play itself. And that I find really interesting, where, where here is that, like, you have a guy who is absolutely the, like this, uh, a central figure, figure of German Baroque, uh, high Baroque music, and he's breaking the rules. And so you're going, okay, Maybe we our preconceptions are are wrong, yes. and uh, so what I I did in my project was I, I you know did everything I sort of transcribed it for bassoon, and then I've also done my own ornamented lines as well. Or I'm working on that myself, and everyone has the chance also to write their own um, in my little studio thing. So. Yeah, please do so. So maybe we we'll put a link to your online studio. If Why not? Yes. Why not? Yeah. yeah, in the description of our episode. Thank you very much, Andrew, for coming. And thank you for this nice conversation. And thanks, Tim. Tim Shatney today is doing the technical wizardry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bye. See you. <laughs>